podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Fire for them, fire for them. If you're looking for that 35 bag umbrella and all damn thing there, keep it locked with this Unomics podcast. 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 Hello and welcome back to episode 68 of the Synomics Podcast. As per, big shout out to my previous guest, Loretta. Episode 67, we discussed being a woman in tech. Um, Loretta, very high-flying young lady in a very big tech company. Travels the world, travels like three times a week. So we're discussing women in tech, why we don't see as many women as compared to men, especially um, women and men from ethnic minorities we discuss dealing with quite a male dominant environment dealing with traveling quite a lot career woman versus family woman all that type of stuff it was quite interesting um quite interesting podcast i'll make sure you check that out especially to the to the ladies i think you can find some valuable information and advice for your career and especially people who are interested in tech as well um this week episode 68 I'm joined again by my guy David. Might as well be a co-host at this rate. And we took it a bit more economical. Um, I haven't listened to a few podcasts. I listened to Rogan, one of my favourite podcasts, and a gentleman, Peter Schiff, he came on. And he was talking about um, another financial crisis is going to come soon. So it kind of prompted me to kind of revisit the financial crisis. I've spoken about it at least two or three times in my previous podcasts. So me and David decided to revisit the financial crisis and we discussed how financial crises occur, what are the signs of them, what the authorities that, whether it be the central bank or sovereign governments do about it, what have these same authorities done in terms of putting roadblocks in place to not allow another financial crisis to occur again. And when it does come again, what weapons do these authorities have to battle it? And we kind of discussed the housing market, what happens if there's another crash? So yeah, episode 68, me, in fact, also, I want to have an announcement soon, hopefully by next podcast you'll hear, but watch this space, but yeah, I don't know why I put that in there, that doesn't make no sense, I can't wait to edit it out, it's too late, but yeah, episode 68, me and David, financial crisis, what happens next, let's go. Hi, it's MXM, and listen to the Dysonomics podcast because it's lit. Hello, and welcome back. Episode 68. I'm joined again by David. This week, we're going to talk financial crisis. More doom and gloom from us two, as per usual. But um, so, how, where, how should we start? Should we discuss what a financial crisis actually looks like or what it is? Yeah, can do. Okay, so... Um... Um, explain to the listeners what you see of, as a what is a sign of a financial crisis. We had we had one what ten years ago. Yeah, about ten years. I think um, August uh, two thousand and seven is when it started. When the first yeah, it's when the first kind of banking uh, issues ha- occurred. I think um, it was it started with HSBC mm-hmm. um, releasing a note, and um, it, it kind of developed from there, snowballed all the way through to um, a recession about a year or so later. Um, and then to be fair, I don't actually think we've, we've, we've kind of got out of the crisis. I think we've just had a massive hangover for about 10 years. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, and, um, 
which obviously sets us up even in an even worse case for the next one because if we haven't got out of the last one then you know um this this next one's just going to be a kind of an addition yeah um so a recession is when your your country's economy is not in fact growing it's like when it stops growing yeah, so a technical recession is basically two quarters of negative growth yes. that um, are in are in kind of succession. Yeah, so your GDP um, is negative for two, yeah, exactly for like yeah. six months basically. But, um, yeah, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're really going to be affected um, because normally it has to be accompanied by some kind of crisis. For example, Canada, I think uh, three or so years ago, and they were in a technical recession. Now that you know, the situation wasn't that bad, even though they had two negative periods of economic economic growth. But, um, you know, uh, it was still classed as a, as a recession, obviously. Okay, cool. So um, a brief description of what happened in the last financial crisis. Uh, essentially, the subprime mortgage um, market went kaboom. Um, banks who were swapping these debt contracts like Pokemon cards, nobody knew who owned what debt. It was hard to recall. Interest rates went up. Banks need to get bailed out, etc., etc., etc. So that's the kind of like the hallmarks. What was the one before that? Was it was it a dot com, dot com um, crash? So yeah, you had the dot com. You had the dot com crash in. Um, well, you actually had two occurring at the same time. Roughly, you had the Asian crisis, which started in about ninety eight, yeah, um, through to about two thousand. Um, and then you had the the dot com crisis, which was essentially tech stocks just being totally overinflated in value things like pets.com being bought loads and then people realizing there's not actually any value in it and it just can't kind of shits itself and um the whole market gets jumpy and, and gets out of it and uh the, the firm goes kaboom, kaboom. And isn't anymore okay so that's <laughs> what a financial crisis kind of looks like so um it's, i think it's important for the listeners to know what type of steps can be taken in in light of financial crisis and then we could discuss what type of steps the authorities allegedly have been taken have been taken since 2008 and yep. in the and then we'll kind of conclude that in the probability that something else is going to happen what are they going to do and is it going to actually work so in terms of what tools uh, let's say a central bank which we have described on many occasions is meant to be an independent um, body that kind of controls the finances, well, controls monetary policy of a country or region. In the case of you know, Europe, you've got the ECB, whereas the UK, we just got the Bank of England and America, have got the Federal Reserve. And then you've got, obviously, the governments in charge who obviously set legislation to try and tackle crisis or try to manage them before they even happen. So what are the things that these bodies can do in terms of, tackling a financial crisis um well the the main thing that the central bank does obviously is control monetary policy so they control the monetary uh, supply by affecting the the interest rate yeah um the lower the interest rate according to uh, monetary policy theory um the better stimulated the economy will be in terms of growth because you're basically giving cheaper credit um to the banks it costs sorry it costs less for the banks to borrow from the central bank essentially um which therefore in turn means that the consumer um has a lesser cost of credit which means that things like you know loans for businesses um mortgages whatever it's a lot cheaper so people are trying 
that people are borrowing more to try and, um, you know, basically get on in life. The issue with that, though, is that... It, it, the banks don't exactly pass the money down. They just use the money just to buy more assets for cheaper, really. Essentially, yeah. Yeah, no, that's it. Um, but alongside that post, uh, oh, we've had quantitative easing, obviously, and if you've heard me on Twitter, if you've heard me in past podcasts, um, I've gone on about this um, so much. And... The central banks have essentially created another massive, massive issue um, purely based off of asset price distortions. Because um, if you can imagine, okay, so you hear about all these um, these uh, firms on the high street going out of business and that kind of thing. What's happened, firstly, is that the central banks have allowed all of this cheap credit, which means that it lowers the cost, sorry, it increases the cost of um, asset prices. Okay, but this the, the the increase in the cost of the asset price is kind of artificial. Yes. Because it's purely based off of the central bank pumping all of this money and buying all up buying up all of these assets to lower the cost of, of credit. Um and people are just trying to find a search for yield because there's basically nowhere that they can put their money for for uh, little risk. There's no interest that they can generate in the bank or off of bonds or whatever relative to inflation so the real rate of return so they look at stuff like land and they just they just pile money into equity stocks for example bonds anything they can they can get their hands on because there is no risk-free rate to to do it so um what you're seeing is just uh, massive distortions in the prices of, of assets and this is why in london specifically you see you know the cost of the cost of uh, shelter is so is so high purely mm. because of this. Now, what's going to happen if the rates go back up? Well, you know you're going to see the risk-free rate return, and you're going to see money pile out of all of these assets, which means that you know <laughs> the, the, the crisis is on our hands because um, you, you'll see some normalisation in terms of asset pricing, and that's just one thing that I'm I'm pretty aware of at the moment, especially. This week, because we've got the Bank of England who are probably going to hike, um, the Fed probably need to hike two or three more times this year. And when um, when, um, when David says hike, he means they have a decision what they're going to do with the interest rates and hike will be like a rise of interest rate, which probably be like, what, a quarter of a percent if they're going to hike. Yeah, they're normally, they're normally doing 25 basis points at yeah. the moment because they just they don't want to tip it too far yeah. and they don't want to uh, deleverage the economy too much. But the issue is, is that the Fed currently are undergoing a shedding of their balance sheet. So basically, when they did QE, they bought all of these assets and they've got a huge, huge liability column on their balance sheet. Um, and that's to the tune of about $4.2 trillion, I believe, at the moment. Which is humongous. Um, yeah, but it's, it's down from 4.5, I think. I think they got rid of loads in, in July. But essentially, what... What that means as well is when they bought all these bonds from the um, from from the Treasury, and it's the same for the Bank of England, it basically cancels government debt. So you see you see a, uh, a percentage of debt to GDP for the UK, for example, at like eighty nine percent. It's not really; it's about fifteen percent lower. So this is why whenever I hear talk of um, budget deficits, of people, not not so much the budget deficit, I mean, um, national debt, no, national debt. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. Because when the when the Bank of England uh, bought all this debt up, they're buying it from you know the UK Treasury. But 
because it's owned by the the central bank, they essentially pay interest to the treasury, who then pays interest back to the central bank, and it's like it's just a circle. So when the when this debt uh, starts to mature and they stop buying more debt to continue QE, it basically means that they've cancelled all of this government debt. It's not owned externally. It's not owned by like another country or anything. It's owned internally. So this is why whenever I see someone saying, oh, yeah, the national debt's increased there, it really hasn't. It's just it's like a technical increase um, because you're basically paying the interest to yourself. So it's um, it's, it's a bit of a funny one. Yeah, especially, um, well, with, as I said, the central bank meant to be independent, but it doesn't really work like that. You mentioned quantum QE, which is quantitative easing. So that's mm-hmm. another step um, that we can take. Well, I say we, I mean authorities can take in terms of trying to tackle, what's it called, um, these these crises, because essentially you're trying to, what's it called, increase the money supply and economy, try to pump up the economy. But it doesn't really, would actually, I'll ask you, would you say QE has worked? No, it's no. one of the worst things ever. Yeah, it's, um, all, it does is, all it's done, in my opinion, since they've they've um, gone this long stretch of QE, is just pump up the asset prices, which just essentially just means the people that have loads and loads of money, and the and the, and the institution that has loads and loads of money, have even more, especially the ones that kind of cause well, along with the government, cause the situation in the first place. What has it yep. done in terms of helping the everyday man or woman? the everyday businessman or woman, not much at all. Because as no, productivity, exactly. productivity is what? Stagnant. Real wage growth, stagnant. Cost of living, still going up. So what has QE really solved, in my opinion, not much? No, it hasn't exactly. And I think um, there's a chart that I saw. I can't remember the specific um, percentages, but I think it was like uh, the, amount, the amount of QE compared to the amount of GDP growth is like... I think it's about 18, 19 times larger. So it's like QE's not really done anything to, to sustain any consistent uh, large increases in, in, in economic growth in, uh, globally. So you have to wonder what's really, really happened. And uh, uh, for me, it just seems like it's, uh, it's, it's basically just been one massive transfer of wealth from the have-nots to the haves. Yeah, 100. 100. Um, Because you can see it just in property prices, for example. Look at the rise of uh, landlordism in in the UK over the last, say, 10, 15 years. It's been been pretty pretty damn huge. Um, I think we had the lowest home ownership rate in 40 years last year. Um, So, you know, that's just one indicator. But um, asset prices are massively distorted right now and i think later on this year maybe next year we're going to see one of the biggest risk repricings ever purely because the central banks are reducing the amount of liquidity that they've put into the economy yeah what well, tightening, right yeah exactly so as, as i was mentioning about them getting rid of their the liabilities on their bank sheet um markets chase liquidity that's why the stock market's been just constantly going up because the liquidity has just been going into the into the uh, equities markets all all the time but now as they reduce that and we saw murmurs of that kind of happening earlier this year um you know it's going to go the other way eventually and i think i think what the fed want to do is probably ramp it back up 
in October-ish because, you know, people aren't really involved in the markets over the summer. So there's already a lack of liquidity there and they'd rather get they'd rather do it when there is more liquidity in the market. Um, and basically liquidity is just people trading in and out of the market, being as many people as possible. If you've got a really liquid market then there's loads of participants engaging in market activities, if there's uh, if there's very few, then uh, there's obviously less. And that means that the price moves can be more drastic. Um, but they want to obviously keep it as, as stable as possible but they still need to get rid of their balance sheet so um it's still going to cause a massive shit show in the end it's very cool so we've spoken about quantitative easing and tightening we've spoken about what's the first thing we spoke about um i can't remember my mind's gone black oh we spoke about them raising rates what type of stuff what about yeah. um what about what other measures would you, would you like to like to see in term, when it comes to crisis, are you? What are your thoughts on letting a bank fail, for example? Yeah, I think we were we were having this discussion in the group, weren't we? Oh, um, I probably I, I probably didn't see. So, what what were people saying? Um, I think uh, someone posted a video of Peter Schiff, who yes. is quite a lib, he's quite a libert- right right leaning libertarian type, and he owns um he owns a financial institution in in the US. He's it's a hedge fund. No, it's a brokerage. Oh, brokerage or yeah, Panama? Pretty large brokerage. I can't remember what it's called, you know. Um, but he's, uh, he's, he's a pretty well-known guy. And he basically went to the Occupy Wall Street event back in, uh, was it 09? Something like that, 09, 010. Um, and he was saying that they the, the, the protesters there were, were protesting against the wrong people they should have been down at washington dc protesting the government because his idea is that the government allows all of these lobbyists and corporate interests into their pockets and without the government protecting them i.e with bailouts qe that kind of thing then you know the banks would fail but they wouldn't engage in these overly risky practices in the beginning but it's the same with the regulators the regulators are allowed to be private entities mm. um in the US, you got Moody's and S and P, and these people were grading, you know, absolute dog shit products as AAA, which is, you know, total bullshit. And as, as a side tangent to this, the EU's tra- the the uh, ECB's trying to do the same with uh, sovereign debt. They want to introduce a structured product um, based on, you know, putting absolute dog shit debt in with really really good high high grade debt. And uh, yeah, I don't think they've learned. But- we know we know about them. They're not not yeah. the smartest types, are they? Yeah, of course. But um, <laughs> but um, yeah. My opinion is that if we allowed the banks to fail, um, and they didn't have, they weren't able to pass on this moral hazard onto uh, the government, for example, then we'd have a much better fu- uh, functioning financial system, and we wouldn't have this over leveraged. Uh, massively distorted risk type situations occurring but if it's the same as uh, student loans in the u.s okay if, if if the government didn't if the government didn't securitize um these student loans via sally may for example who mm. provide federal student loans um you know you wouldn't have the universities charging a huge huge amount not allowing people to default you can't go into chapter 11 bankruptcy in the US on your student loan, um, you can go into hardship, I think, but I don't think that's the same thing. And it just means that your credit rating is totally ruined. 
but in the US you still have to continue paying your student loan no matter what it's pretty crazy um, and if you didn't have the government doing this then the the default risk and the credit risk would lie solely with the university yeah which means that they would have to lower the, the cost of it because um, it'd have to be relative to firstly wage growth and secondly your actual prospects of, of earning and um, the government government distorts a lot of stuff um, you know they create they create monopolies um, if you think about the land situation they create monopolies by specific uh, planning laws things like that giving subsidies to property developers student loans is the same thing not so much here because student loans is more of a tax here mm. rather than a Rather than actual debt, whereas in America it's, it's totally different. They they securitize it, and um, yeah, it means that the universities can do whatever the hell they want because they don't hold the default risk. So um, yeah, whenever you see government kind of stepping in to places, you always have to question why they're doing it, what are their interests for, for doing it, because there's always political and uh, corporate interests in government. A free market wouldn't operate in the same way. Yes, you'd still need regulators. Yes, you'd still need some kind of oversight, but not in the way where government physically comes in and uh, and operates according to whatever they want. I mean, we saw it with, with RBS, for example. The government came in and uh, took over RBS, didn't they? And they've recently sold it off of, as uh, at a, uh, a loss to the taxpayer. Yeah, big loss. Or most, most of it, I think. Why? Why have they done that? Um, it doesn't make any sense. See, if if it, if we were allowed to operate in a freer market, it's more off. It's more likely that you know another entity could have come and bought all of those assets from RBS. Yeah. But the government didn't really allow it. Um, the government just allowed. Because for example, when the two thousand and seven eight crash, didn't Bank of America buy Merrill Lynch? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Um, yeah, I think you're right there. I, I don't know the specifics about that one, but um, yeah. I think I think it might be might be right. Someone else can check that. Uh, yeah, we yeah. can check it after. But yeah. come but and yeah, me if I'm I mean, wrong if you if you like. But generally, um, if see the, the the way that the free market in terms of finance would work is that if you saw all these assets going for discount because they knew that someone was failing, and you saw them going for like forty cents on the dollar, for example, or forty p on the pound. Mate, that's a massive discount. I'd be in there buying that if I was a massive institution. Yeah, 100. Do you know what I mean? Because eventually, it's more. It's pretty likely that the that the market's going to go up and you can sell it off or make a profit on it. But because the government kind of got scared and they didn't want to run on uh, the bank or anything, then they came in and now they've done absolute shite and sold it off at a, at a loss again. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, a question. Another question I wanted to pose to you. So, for example, let's say it's one of our banks. Who's our biggest bank? Is it Barclays? Um, good question. HSBC. Okay. Is it, I thought HSBC was Singapore based. No, the UK bank. Well, yeah, they're in. They're in Singapore, Singapore. obviously. But yeah, okay, cool. Uh, HSBC or Barclays? You have one of them, them mugs, yeah. If they, for example, went down, went down the toilet, people yeah. say. Could we really let them fail? Because so many people have money, savings, blah blah blah, with these banks. So some people argue that you cannot allow these type of institutions to go down simply because a lot of people in the, in the nation 
their mortgages, their savings, their just general current accounts are with these institutions. Yeah, but again, it's like a chicken and egg scenario. Mm. Um, would these institutions carry out the activities that they do if they didn't uh, think that the the government would be in to save them? Mm. You know, I understand. I do understand that. Yeah, that is this kind of situation we're in. But what I'm proposing is that look, um, the only reason they're carrying out these things is because they don't hold enough of the risk themselves, the risk to their livelihoods, for example. Um, yeah, you've had to see Lehman Brothers was an example, but Lehman Brothers was relatively small. I I'm, I'm not too sure why it's held up as like some massive kind of institution compared to all the others. Yeah, Lehman um, Brothers, they weren't massive. They weren't massive. They were just heavily involved in, in a lot of uh, structured products, trading and and uh, things like that. I actually met, met with someone who uh, was brought on during the crisis. I met with him last week who um, who was involved in trying to get rid of as many assets as possible during that time. And he just said, oh, it was absolutely mental. He made a shit ton of money. Though, but oh, was it? That's a, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where, yeah, I do understand that, um, you know, um, there's there's... There's probably not too much outside of government intervention, um, purely based on the fact that the government has previously said that they'd intervene to save. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, because that's all that can really happen because the amount of risk that has been taken on because they know they're too big to fail. Um, but we've had other things like um, Basel, uh, which is basically a liquidity um, a bank asset type arrangement where they've said that you have to hold more assets um, as tier one capital. So you have to hold more capital relative to the assets that you hold. But that's been a massive con as well. The reason being is that there's something called internal risk weightings. So as interest rates have gone down and the risk-free rate has decreased, the banks have also said, look, things like mortgage-backed securities aren't that risky anymore. So they've weighed them really, really lightly. Okay. When really they're they're weighed heavily, and it's kind of offset the required increase in in capital that the banks need to hold. So technically, we're in the same situation as two thousand and eight, in my view, um, and that's been the view of of uh, quite a few people that I've spoken with as well. Um, and it's all down to liquidity again. That word liquidity, because um, when there's no liquidity, you can't get rid of your assets, and so you have to go all the way to the bottom to find a buyer, and that's what's going to happen again. Um, and yeah, I just don't really see it being any easier on us than what 2008 was. It's going to be way, way harder. It's going to be, oh, it's going to be an absolute shit show. Okay, um, mm -hmm. so we discuss the steps they can take and basically discuss why it doesn't really do anything. Um, what are the things? Okay, you you briefly touched on increasing like um, the level, the amount of capital that banks need. Is it possible for us to get to a stage where we are literally forcing these banks to deleverage? Do you think that is possible, or is it, or is it a thing where the banks are so deep in bed with the government institutions that that just seemingly won't happen? You know, you get you get people like um, what's his name, the American guy, the the oh, the one that lost to um, Hillary Clinton, but he got shagged. Oh, what's his name? 
Bernie Bernie Saunders. Yeah. And obviously you've got guys like Corbyn who wants like massive like regulations of the banks. Do you think we can ever get to that stage where we have these institutions on a tighter leash? Um well it's actually quite paradoxical because since the since the seventies, um, regulations have increased year on year. Um, things got worse. Uh, yeah, they have got worse. You're right. Mm. Um, but I, I think that's uh, I think that's more to do with, uh, firstly, the amount of banks that have kind of consolidated. So there used to be like eighty, a hundred banks back back in the seventies, like major banks. Now there's probably like 10 because they've all gone and just bought all of the smaller banks yeah. and they've just become, you know, City, JP Morgan, Goldman, blah, 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 Deutsche. Um, and they've just kind of uh, created this big oligopoly. And it's one of the reasons as well with uh, Mifid 2 that came in that the big banks were supporting it because Mifid 2 basically means that all of the 1.4 million paragraphs require a compliance officer or a massive, massive compliance team, and smaller participants just can't get involved. So you've got all of this concentrated risk with these few banks, and the smaller participants, you know, it can't be uh, distributed well enough. So you've got these massive, these maybe 10 massive institutions holding all of this risk. And so it's always going to be that eventually it kind of topples to one way, and we're seeing it with Deutsche Bank now. And... Um, the, the ECB actually released a, I think it was like a 60-page document about concentrated risk in the Eurozone and how they didn't specifically name Deutsche Bank, but it's pretty fucking obvious that it's Deutsche Bank and they got a $75 trillion derivatives book, you know? And the, when you have concentrations like that, it's the same with uh, Lehman Brothers. When you have concentrations like that, it's always going to cause a massive, massive issue that will then create a domino effect across. So I think the, the, the main thing that we have to kind of uh, think about here is firstly, what is the government and central bank doing um, to create this, uh, these, these price distortions that cause irresponsible um, behavior. irresponsible behavior. Yeah. Irresponsible risk taking, which we're seeing, Again, obviously, as I described at the beginning. Um, secondly, I would say that we do need to be more um, kind of we do need more oversight into the specifics about the, um, the the rules that are imposed on banks. Like as I said, although they might have introduced the, the required increased in increases in capital. It's offset by the decrease in risk weights because the banks are allowed to rate their own risk internally. But shouldn't, how does that make sense? Yeah, that that shouldn't run. Like that's like you're no, basically exactly. you're regulating yourself. Like oh, but that's basically like Ox and me. Like I want to get a mortgage. They said, "Joy, yeah, you do your own credit check and come back to us." All right, cool, yeah, safe. That's um, much what it is. Yeah, here's my credit score nine nine nine. Can I have a great loan? You see what I'm saying? Is that this is almost akin to that, which does not yeah. make sense. But um, boy, here we are. Um, no, exactly. Speaking of government um, intervention, and we're discussing earlier um, um, Peter talking to people who are on, on the Occupy Wall Street vibe. How? Why do you think the government gets away scotch free with so much of this? Um, so much like such little accountability 
to the goings on in like the financial markets because to me it's insane like how much they get away with it. For for example, the last crisis, people understand that it was based around the subprime mortgage market, and it started yeah. off. I think it's Franny May and Franny Mac. These are government bodies basically telling the banks that you have to give Americans the ability to get mortgages. And the banks are like, hold on, yeah, you have, to, you have to be able to afford the mortgage. Like no. You have to do that. It's the American dream, blah, blah, blah. The banks are, all right, safe. Let's let's flip these contracts and to make more money. Yet, ever since then, it's just been the banks have been getting pammed by the people. The one percenters are getting pammed by the people. What people understand is that these people, at least these people are creating jobs and that. What, why, how did the government manage to get away with, with, so, with such little accountability, in your opinion? Because it's, it's cognitive dissonance, isn't it? Mm. Basically... People um, from a specific side, um, the left, let's say, who dis- dislike capitalism are never going to say that it's down to the government that has caused these issues because that would totally mean that it goes against their own uh, beliefs and their own political leanings. Second, the second reason is obviously they don't un- understand finance either. Yeah, um, that's another that's another issue, and I'm 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 not saying that people are stupid or anything because finance is fucking hard to understand. I only know a tiny tiny bit about it in my opinion, um, but at the same time, you have to understand the ecosystem that we live in and the different components that make things, you know, what it is. You have to understand how the mechanism works because if you don't, you end up spouting absolute bollocks. And I'm not saying like oh, the things that I say are right or anything, but I like to think that I have a a broad enough understanding of how things work to know that, look, if if you take on um, undue risk, then, you know, and, and your reward's not high enough, then you're an idiot. Banks understand that. Yeah. But But they seem to be taking on undue risks with possibly some reward, but they don't know what the specific reward is, but they don't care because they're underwritten by the government. Yeah. And um, I think that's what Peter Schiff was trying to say as well, was that, look, we'd be in a much less distorted place in terms of finance, in terms of people thinking that the banks are the, the bad guy. Um, if people understood that it's actually the government that creates these distortions because... You can't really, you can't fight the government. They create the laws, don't they? Yeah, exactly. You know, you, can 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 you sue the government? I don't even know. You could try, but, um, and you'll lose probably. <laughs> exactly, and um, you know, as, as I said, it comes down to this cognitive dissonance where, um, yeah, it's 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 almost like uh, people people want a solution, but they want to blame capitalism and and all of these other things when really it's 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 a mixture of both but they'll never say that it's the government's fault um because as i said socialism relies on the state um and that's not me railing to railing into socialists or anything as i said before i've become softer to them recently but it's just uh, because I realise that really all most people want to do is just get by and live. They don't actually hate anyone else. They just don't understand why they're in the situation that they're in. And, um, yeah, I think that's also why people, as they get older, they tend to move more over to the to the, to the the centre or, or, or the right because they things start to make sense a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and, you know, obviously... you. 
find out more about yourself as you go on you find out that um kind of being an individual is is possibly a little bit better um but then you go onto Twitter and you type in FBP and you still need to see these fucking smackheads that are like 60, <laughs> 70 years old just absolutely going mental, don't they? So, it's, yeah. Okay. But, um, I was, I was, but, yeah, that's just my view, that's all. Okay, I, I have similar views. In terms of, okay, in terms of dealing with the next potential financial crisis, what are your thoughts on devaluing your currency to tackle that? Um... Do you mean just decreasing the interest rate? Um, yeah, and do you know, like, some, for example, like, oh, I can't remember, who was I listening It might have been Peter Schiff I was listening to on Rogan's podcast. I can't remember. And they're talking about the next financial crisis and if you devalue the dollar, what, what, how does, I can't remember. Well, if you devalue the dollar, um, you're more likely to boost exports, which, incre- which leads to an increase in aggregate demand, um, which invariably leads to an increase in inflation which then means that you have to raise the interest rate again um which then does see that's why it's a bit of a catch-22 because obviously if you increase export as good if you're a let's say if it's here your businessman or businesswoman here if you if it's if the pound is um devalued that means people with their yen their naira their duran whatever can now buy more of your goods which boosts demand which is great which also boosts yeah. output less unemployment, blah, blah, blah. That's great. But if they raise interest rates, this is the catch-22 because we've been experiencing quite low interest rates. So for people yeah. who have um, mortgages that are not fixed rates, for people who have mm-hmm. debt that are not fixed rates, that then changes things. And also stuff like borrowing, if you want to invest, it's going to be a lot harder if the rate of interest goes up. So it's a bit of a catch-22. I'm not too sure about if you want to devalue yeah. your currency in terms of saving See- See, my view that what the the interest rate should be firstly determined by the market, and secondly, we shouldn't be targeting inflation as a basis of our interest rate expectations. Um, we should we should probably target nominal GDP um, mm. because you know if if things are going good, it's almost like when you're when I'm trading, for example, um, if things are going good, I don't really want to stifle that. So I don't understand why if uh, GDP is going up, but inflation's increasing. Why would you want to stifle your your economic growth? Um, there's other ways on you know the the, the fiscal side that you can affect um, inflation, inflation slightly, but in, inflation's you know um, <laughs> inflation I feel is slightly arbitrary when they focus on CPI, which is the consumer price, price index. index. Is that when they get yeah. a bunch of goods and they look at it? Yeah, because. Uh, if you, for example, the I was listening to um, uh, Jerome Powell at the Fed, the ch- new chairman of the Fed, um, I think it was two weeks ago on Wednesday, and he was basically saying, he was mentioning headline inflation, and head, headline inflation includes energy prices as well. Mm-hmm. And this basket of goods that they make up every month or every other month, it, it doesn't make sense to me because just because people's behaviors change doesn't mean that that is really affecting the inflation rate. You know, if, if, if I, if someone's buying more milk or if the population's buying more milk one month, but other things are also increasing, it, it doesn't make sense to me, but almost everyone needs energy. Okay. Yeah. And although energy prices are volatile, it still affects people's pockets the most. So yeah, you can't you can't really uh, policy make based on inflation. So this is why I feel it's slightly arbitrary. 
but you can policy make on uh, on on uh, nominal GDP. GDP. Yeah, because it's a longer term view. So if you see that your your GDP rate is going up by three percent this year, then you know why would you want to tamper with potentially tamper with it? I mean, of course, yeah, there might be real um, real GDP issues, but you know, let the market decide what the interest rate should be, rather than some stupid uh, committee that doesn't even that doesn't even know what they're doing. Honestly, like the, the expectations and the amount of times they've changed their minds, they, they wouldn't know their ass from their elbow. I don't think it's the same in the monetary policy committee. I can't wait to see what they do this week. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I, I just think we need a total change in central banking. But I don't have all the answers for that. I'm not smart enough for that. Yeah, it's, it's quite difficult. Um, because when you look at inflation, obviously, um, what we're alluding to, how they calculate inflation, they get like a basket of goods, maybe like seven hundred different goods. It could be I don't know, Big Macs, iPhones, whatever, and then they monitor the price diff- changes across that, and they, yeah. they don't and they don't include house prices in, in that. So no, sorry, yeah, that's that's another thing I didn't include. Yeah, yeah house prices. Yeah. So when you actually look at it. Is quite insane to think that on 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 per monthly or bi monthly changes in how human beings end up buying these goods or services, um, a committee of people will make economic decisions which can impact things like your your growth. And I think the whole target two point thing, which is obviously where they target a, a inf- inflation rate of two percent, to me. I agree with you. It's a bit. I I don't understand why you put like um, your actual economy's growth and productivity at potential jeopardy to kind of maintain this arbitrary measurement. It doesn't really make much sense. Um, No, exactly. And I think I think I think as well um, what you mentioned about the um, the house prices is pretty relevant too. I would think it'd be a better measure to to record via RPI, which includes obviously the the increase in in um, housing costs. But I wonder why they don't do that. Probably because there's vested interest to keep house prices going up so that they can keep making money off of them. Yeah, because the RP, RPI was a norm before, I swear. And yeah. They, and they switched to the um, consumer price index instead. Oh, yeah. these men are dodgy, I can't even lie. Hey, our podcast needs to stop being so doom and gloom, you know? Oh, let's wait until shit goes to the bottom and then we can talk about what to buy. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's wait till the crash and then when everyone's pessimistic, then we can talk about good stuff. Okay, cool. It's the way the markets work. Honestly, actually, that's a good point, okay? When um, when things are becoming... How do I put it? When the majority thinks everything's really, really good, okay? So, for example, in the markets right now, we're so high that people have made a lot of money on the way up but when everyone's thinking that things are really good, this is how the markets work, you probably want to think about going the other way um, because you're going to catch out so many people on the on the other way down and vice versa. When everyone's so pessimistic in the markets and when everyone thinks the price is like, oh, God, it's going to keep going down, that's probably the best time to buy. <laughs> it's true. So, so we'll keep doing these podcasts in about a year or so. I reckon let's let's do a let's do an upbeat one. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, here's here's how time to <laughs> to make to make some racks. Okay. In terms of um, uh, the crash, any predictions? What do you think? Do you think are we we're likely to see one in the next like three four years or? 
Um, well, I uh, I actually put a post out on LinkedIn um, that was talking about how the Fed was obviously getting rid of all of their their assets. And um, if you follow it on the way up, it follows the Fed's buying. Okay, mm. and um, the Fed back in October 2017, they that's when they started getting rid of all their assets again. And in January or so, January February, we saw that dip in the market, mm. and I think that was the first murmur. Mm. Now I think they're going to increase it heavily again in Octoberish, and what we're going to see in maybe January February is a repeat of what we had, what we saw in uh, the the earlier part of this year. But um, because the Fed had now pretty much fully committed to getting rid of it i think um the initial one this year was just a kind of test to see what the buyers were like Whoa. out there mm. but um later on in the year when they start doing it again um we'll we'll see we'll see it um dip a bit more so i think i'll be i'll be looking out for maybe end of jan feb again just to um just to see if we if we break down a little bit further Okay, actually, finally, what I want to conclude something that can be relevant to everybody. How does another financial crisis impact those who are just about to get to get a new um, house or those who, already, who have recently got a new house? Well, I guess it doesn't matter unless you're looking to sell. You don't really want to go into negative equity, do you? Yeah. Um, but if, you know... In, in, the situa- in, the, in the system we're in now, house prices are always going to go up eventually. Um, I guess it's just don't sell at the top. <laughs> yeah. Or do sorry, or do sell at the top. Don't buy at the top, and then expect to sell in like whenever, because it will just it will just not work out. I don't think. Yeah, I, I think I I think homeowners shouldn't be too scared because the the markets will bounce back. Unless you're trying to sell within the next five years, then mm, it might be a bit yeah. tight. But the other thing as well is that I, I actually think interest rates. They're, they're, they're trying to push them up now but only to do a specific only to uh, get rid of their assets on their balance sheets but I think that over the next forever until we have a complete change of system interest rates are going to be rock bottom which is just going to keep causing massive um, issues in the in the markets with distorted asset prices um, but that has a knock on effect obviously onto like variable mortgages, interest free mortgages um, that kind of thing but um that should obviously keep the cost of the mortgage lower if interest rates are lower. So, um, yeah, but I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a crystal ball person. I don't know. Yeah, we'll, we'll, have, well, to, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. All right, cool. So, you had to give a more economic podcast. I've been too social in my last few weeks, so I had to bring back a bit of finance talk. But yeah, David, thank you for joining me. As per, where can we find you if you want people to find you? Uh, on Twitter in City. Uh, send me a message on LinkedIn if you want to ask me anything. So yeah, David, uh, David Bell with got, two L's on the E. I got rid of my curious cat because people started being weird. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah, they start being. Yeah, I'm not gonna go into it, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. How this, <laughs> you, anonymous questions are never a good idea. Yeah, they don't affect me. I was just like, it was weird. Was like, yeah. Why are you asking me stuff like this? Yeah. And, yeah. But anyway, yeah, just if anyone has a question, just send me a message on LinkedIn. I'm I'm sure I'll answer at some point. <laughs> okay. All right, cheers. Thank you for joining me. Um, um please like and follow on SoundCloud, Dysonomics on SoundCloud. If you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please make sure you subscribe, at least my pod and if you subscribe, you should get notifications when my podcast drops. Usually Sunday at 10 30 pm. And you might have if you have auto downloads, it will download for you. 
So you can listen on your commute to wherever you go, maybe work, to the gym, dropping kids off, school, whatever. But yeah, thank you for listening. I'll be back next week. And David, thank you again. No worries, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Podcast Network.